Welcome to Think or Swim Live on the Stunt Show, coming to you live from sunny Southern California and heard around the world on the Nahum Siegel Network at NahumSiegel.com and the NSN app. The show, the Stunt Show, is heard every Thursday, 1 Eastern. Now it's uh, 1 Eastern Daylight Savings Time and 10 Pacific. Stunt Show is a rotating cast of hosts to keep you entertained. This week, it's my turn. My name is Eliyahu Fink, and aside from hosting a radio show, sporadically, I guess, I am the rabbi of the uh, Shul on the Beach in Venice Beach, California. And yes, it is as amazing as it sounds. Shul is actually on the beach. We'll get to that in a moment. Um, I also have a Shul on the internet, and my blog, thinkorswim.com, and the Facebook page uh, for my for this community very active destinations for conversations about issues facing our community and anything else on my mind, really. And this week, actually, is kind of a weird time to be hosting the show, but it is my last week as the rabbi at the Shul on the Beach. Uh, it's time for me to move to the next thing. And I say farewell to the Shul on the Beach. It's been an incredible experience. Um, of course, the Shul on the Internet still lives on. But the show on the beach will also live on without my physical presence. So I think that this was a good week and a good time to reflect a little bit on some of the unique experiences and lessons that I have learned over the last six and a half years as the rabbi of the shul in a very, very interesting place. Now, it's not really about me. I don't want to talk about you know me. I want to talk about the shul and the people and the experiences, which probably very few of the people out there listening have had similar experiences. It's so different from everything that most people that are Orthodox, especially the people that are Orthodox in Orthodox Jewish communities, are accustomed to, that I feel like it's uh, really important to try and give everyone a little bit of a taste and a flavor of what it is that we do. So, as always, you can contact me um, in real time. You can message me on Facebook. Elio Fink, or you can uh, leave a comment on the Facebook post that is for this show, uh, which you can find at my Facebook page as well. Uh, you can send me an email. You can send me, if you have my phone number, you can send me a text message. Well, just kidding. My, my texting is off. We don't want anybody to uh, text in during the show because then everybody's going to hear the text message alerts. And then um, you can also uh, email the show and uh, maybe my producer will help me with uh, your questions as well. So, I invite your thoughts as always, but today in particular, um, I'm willing to take any comments or questions about being the rabbi of the Shul on the Beach and what it's like to be the rabbi at the Shul on the Beach and what it's like to have a daily or a weekly and a very, um, very different way of experiencing Judaism, experiencing life than what most people in the Orthodox Jewish community are accustomed to. So let's get started. First, we have to begin with Los Angeles. All right, Los Angeles is beautiful town. We love Los Angeles. And Los Angeles is very different than what I was accustomed to when I came here. And when I got here, it was a little bit of a culture shock. I came here about 10 years ago. I had been, you know, Muncie, New York, Baltimore, Yeshiva, Israel, places that are very familiar. And Los Angeles was definitely a different thing. And because it's different, you know, you have to get used to it. When you get used to it, that's the first thing that you can do. Get used to it. Um, so after you get used to it, you find out that there's like this other thing that is beyond Los Angeles, which is Venice. Now, Venice is technically the beach of Los Angeles. People ask sometimes like where Venice is, where is it, where is this place? If you're on, if you're in Los Angeles and you just go west, you're in Venice. That's basically what it is. Venice is not really its own city, its own town. It's, it's, it's really just a part of Los Angeles and Venice. Not only is it a part of Los Angeles, but it's the extremes of Los Angeles. Los Angeles is known for a lot of things. Creativity, hedonism, <laughs> homelessness, beautiful weather, beaches, all those things are part of Los Angeles. Venice has all those things in extremes. So in Venice, you have very creative people, very eclectic people. You have people that are different than anywhere else in the world. Even within Los Angeles, it's known as the hub of creativity in some ways. Then you also have more homelessness in Venice, because if you're going to be homeless, where, why, would you run, why would you not want to be homeless in in Venice, right? That's where the beach is. But besides that, Venice has a very open-minded liberal community. It's very interesting in um, helping people and very interested in helping people in a way that uh, they are comfortable, 
So there are very few restrictions on things in Venice. There's a lot of free speech. There's a lot of opportunity for people, if they don't have conventional thoughts or ideas or ways of living, to make it or at least survive as long as they can in Venice. And then even within Venice, there are extreme, there are different levels, right? So you can be all the way east in Venice. And that's like, you know, the border of Los Angeles. When you move further west, when you go towards the beach and you get to the beach, there's the Venice boardwalk. The Venice boardwalk is the second most popular tourist destination in Los Angeles, right after Universal. Disneyland is not in Los Angeles, but that would be both of them. And when you get to the boardwalk, that is where you meet the real Venice because the real Venice is the most extreme of all. And you have people living on the beach. And not only do you have people living on the beach, you have people that are, um, and I don't mean living in the beach in homes. I mean, living on the beach in ho- homeless or in little tents or just like sleeping underneath um, awnings. But you also have a regular bazaar, not bizarre, bazaar with an A. And that bazaar is, uh, the Buenos Boardwalk has, you know, these pop-up shops, people put up stands and they are either entertaining people or singing or doing art or selling art or selling their creations that look like, you know, your, your four-year-old child could have made them while they were, were, were sleepwalking, but they charge a lot of money for them. So there's a lot of interesting things in the boardwalk and it's, it's, it's really the, like the, the center of free speech and creativity in a way that I don't think anybody in a firm community has ever experienced. It's, you know, Times Square is like it a little bit, um, but Times Square is also very commercial. And Venice Beach is like, you know, very freedom, 1960s, uh, frozen in the hippie era kind of uh, place. And a lot of people that are there have actually been there since the 60s. And they're still doing the exact same thing they were doing every single year. There's a lot of palm readers, and these are like the real palm readers. These are the, the palm reader rebbies. And there are a lot of people who are healers, and there are people that do a lot of spiritual things, but not religious or Jewish things. And there is a very strong contrast between what you see as you walk to shul and what's actually the shul, because the shul is literally on the boardwalk. We open our doors, and there's a boardwalk, and there's vendors right there. I mean, there was a vendor across the street from us for the first four years that I was there. She was a palm reader. She said the vibes from the shul helped her read palms better. Next to her was a, uh, was a, was a healer who you can find him on YouTube, just type in Venice Healer. And he also wanted to be near the show because he said the vibes there were good for his business. And actually, the palm reader, you know, she was gone for like two and a half years. And then she just showed up again a couple of months ago. It was nice to see her back. But the, uh, the, the healer, he's been there straight. You can always see him. He's wearing a nice purple jacket. He's always there. And every night by sunset, he goes out to the beach, turns around, sticks his arms up in the air, gets the rays of the sun so he could heal them, heal, he can heal his uh, customers with the rays of the sun. This is literally normal behavior on Venice Beach. Nobody looks at him as if he's strange. In fact, when we dance outside on Simchas Torah with the, with the Sefer Torah on the last Takafa, we go out every year and um, always there are, you know, we have guests. Sometimes we have yeshiva boys that come to uh, experience uh, Simchas Torah with us. My brothers have come for the last bunch of years um, with some of their friends. And <laughs> it's hilarious because sometimes they look a little bit uncomfortable. And when, when they're a little bit uncomfortable, they say, oh, you know, should we be out on the boardwalk? Should we be doing this? It's weird. I don't know if I'm comfortable. And I'm like, I promise you, you are the most normal person in the beach right now. If you are dancing in your suit in 85 degree weather with the sun shining, holding a Sefer Torah, you are more normal than everybody else here. And I'm not exaggerating. It was, it's a really, really interesting place. And then you have to take the days of the week. So during the weekdays, it's kind of weird. But like on the weekends, whether it's Shabbos or Sunday or other weekend for holidays, like, you know, Monday of, uh, President's Week or whatever, or Labor Day weekend, that is when it gets to the most extreme. And you have parades and you have wall-to-wall people and you have the craziest, the most interesting things that you could ever possibly imagine. There's people that you would, that, that are actually performing in a freak show. Like there is a circus freak show on Venice Boardwalk. It's just a five minute walk from the beach, from the shul, I mean. So it, it gets even more extreme on the weekends. And on the weekends, You'll see, you know, there's a guy that, that wears stilts and dresses up like a tree. And there's a guy that, I'm not joking, he actually does dress up like a tree. And there's also a guy who rides around on his rollerblades playing, you know, classic guitar. And there's a guy that pulls his, uh, red wagon with a boom, with a booming, um, amp playing this music that he's been selling. And I can only imagine he's been selling it for at least 15 years because I've heard it every single week for six and a half years. And I don't think that he just started when I got there. And it's basically like reggae version of nursery rhymes. So every single Shabbos, I would hear the Itsy Bitsy Spider in a reggae tune. And you could hear it inside because you got it really loud and you would hear it every single week. So these are the things that you experience on a Shabbos. And then you walk in the doors of this shul, which is 
blue and white and got some Jew or Jerusalem stone on the outside. And you open the doors, you walk, well, doors are open. You walk in and you're enveloped with the peace and serenity of a very, very beautiful shul that maybe is not aesthetically beautiful in the, in the sense that, you know, it's not, it's not, it doesn't have beautiful chandeliers and mahogany, um, mahogany furniture, but it has a simplicity and it has a aura that people can, that people can feel that when they walk in, it just feels so peaceful and so relaxing and so different, such a contrast from the outside. So that's the culture shock that people experience every time they walk in. And for me, imagine I'm, I'm, I'm from Muncie. I'm a country boy. So the city for me was weird. And then the beach for me, I never went to the beach. I wasn't a beach guy. Not my personality anyway to go to the beach. And then after that, you go to like Venice Beach. And then when you're at Venice Beach, you're experiencing all the craziness. And then you walk in the doors and you're experiencing something new and different. And it's very beautiful to have that moment where just the contrast is felt. Um, so that's the, really the, just the, just, just the basic broad brush strokes of what it looks like, what it, what it is to experience this. And I invite everyone to try it. I mean, even if I'm not going to be there, you should probably take some, some time and make a vacation to Los Angeles. And if you're on vacation in Los Angeles, I think you should spend Shabbos at the beach. Unless you need an Arab. If you need an Arab, don't do it. But if you don't need an Arab, you should definitely spend Shabbos at the beach because you're never going to see anything like that ever again. It's, it's almost like a, a Mardi Gras every single week. But it's the contrast, I think, is what makes us feel special, what makes us feel very, very different. Of all the days that the contrast is most apparent, it's the high holidays. right? So you have every shul that has a constituency that is not particularly orthodox. right? So we have plenty of orthodox Jews, of course, but there are many people that are living in the neighborhood that want to go to a traditional Orthodox service and they come on the high holidays. That's when they go. So on the high holidays, the, the, um, the population of the shul, uh, blossoms. And if on a normal Shabbos, we would have, let's say 65, 75, 85 and a nice Shabbos, a hundred people on, you know, on high holidays, we'd have 200, at least for parts of the service. And those 200 people, like some of the most eclectic, diverse group of people that you'll find in any shul and really anywhere, because you have people that are, Born Orthodox that are no longer Orthodox, but they want to come to Shul holidays. You have people that were not Orthodox that have adopted an Orthodox lifestyle. They're from now and they, they come to Shul every week, but they come to that week. And then you have people that have, you know, mixtures of those two. You know, sometimes you have spouses and couples and children that are all different places in their Orthodox Judaism. And they have all kinds of different backgrounds. You have Sephardim, you have Ashkenazim, you have Israelis, you have Europeans, we have South Africans, South Americans, Americans besides for the Californians. We have people from all over the world of all different ethnicities and all different experiences and they come together and they have this all all in one experience they all do it we all do it we all do it together and the high holidays for me were always one of the most inspiring times to be there because you see people that wouldn't go to show otherwise but they would come once a year and they come and they're dedicated and they enjoy it and they love it and we loved providing it for them one story that sticks out in my mind about uh, the high holidays i think it was my second year and you can imagine what it's like it's venice boardwalk i think that your yom kippur, yom kippur was on um, a Friday night and Friday night on the boardwalk is, you know, it's a fun time People going to the bars the week is over work weeks over as if anybody in Los Angeles ever works and they are enjoying the relaxing, you know, it's the end of the summer, it's September. And there's this young woman, probably 23, 24 years old sitting at a bar and she's dressed for the beach, which is by the way, not so common in Venice beach because it's not so warm in Los Angeles, even during the summer, people mostly wear cover-ups. They mostly walk down the street as if they were in the city. But then they go down to the water, which is actually pretty far from the boardwalk by us. The, the sand in Venice Beach is like really, really far. Like you go to Malibu, the distance from the boardwalk or the street, the sidewalk to this, to the water, it's like, you know, 10 yards. But the distance in, in Venice Beach is like a 10 minute walk. It's not, well, it's not really a 10 minute walk, but it's really far. So she's dressed for the beach actually. And she's sitting at a cafe right near the shoal. And she sees all these people walking from the parking lot where they're parking for the whole Yom Kippur. And they're walking towards the shoal. And you see people, men wearing kittles, dressed in white, women wearing white, you know, white shoes, white sneakers. Um, it just looks very dramatic. And they're all, you know, we have, we have for Kol Nidre, we have hundreds of people. They're all slowly making their way towards the, the shul. And she sees this and she realizes that it's Yom Kippur. She's Jewish. And she says she wants to join. So she comes towards the shul and she's like, I don't feel comfortable though because you're all dressed up in very formal wear and it's Yom Kippur. I feel like I shouldn't be wearing this. And so we decided that uh, we would give her a talus. She covered herself up in a talus like a shawl. Um, and she was there for Kol Nidre. And it was very powerful for me because here's a person who, who really wanted to have Kol Nidre. She hadn't planned for it. And because we were there in that location and that time, and we were able to, she felt comfortable enough to even approach us, uh, we were able to provide that 
for her. So the high holidays were full of these kinds of experiences, which are different. You don't have that um, in Brooklyn, I assume. I mean, not from Brooklyn, but I definitely have it. In, definitely did not have that in Muncie. So for me to have that culture shock, this different kind of experience, was something that it was jarring. It, it, it makes you think about what you, what you, what is important, um, and you know how you want to approach a Jewish experience in a shul. Um, for people that maybe don't have the same background as you, because, you know, in the shul that I, my family, my family Dobbins in Muncie now, you know, it's like, there's a little bit of diversity, but when you know, in a from shul, a little bit of diversity is like really, really little. So when you see the people that are there and they all really kind of have the same sort of experience, they all send their kids to the same kinds of schools, they all went to the same kinds of yeshivas, um, they all have kind of similar life goals and aspirations, they all kind of follow the same similar path of life. It's beautiful because it's, it's it's big and people sing together, they daven together, they have a very um, enriching experience. But the contrast between that and the Venice experience is so different. And I loved, I always loved, um, learning about that experience from the different perspective that I now had as a rabbi in Venice Beach. So that was kind of like, I think, a little bit of an overview of what it's like to be there. Um, you know, I I find that people don't even know what to ask sometimes. Like, what is what is different about it? How is it different? What how does it work? Um, you know, I was, I was even talking to uh, producer Rav Rami and we were talking about what's special, what's different about the shul on the beach. And I'll bring in Rav Rami here for a second. Like I was, I was wondering, Rav Rami, what was the, what was the thing that you thought about when he's like, there's a rabbi on the beach, there's a shul on the beach. What, what does that, what does that make you wonder? Like the, what's the first question that pops into what's it like? Uh, well, I'm, my first question, I think, was about really about you and your approach to it. Like, because of where you're coming from, did you go into it thinking, having certain like preconceived notions about it, and also for yourself plans of what, based on that, you wanted to accomplish there? And then now that you're past it or and you know moving on, like, did you did you get those goals? Were were those no like were you very wrong about what you thought? That kind of thing, like how your interaction was, what you thought it was going to be, and then what did it end up being? Uh, that's a great, it's actually a great question because I had no idea what it was, what it was. Like if you would have asked me to describe it before I was there, I would have not said any of the things that I just said, except for maybe, you know, Venice Beach, it's a crazy place and the shul's there. I wouldn't have known any of the stuff that I just said. It's a very intimate kind of description, which you only get from being there for so long. So, and the truth is, it's hard for me to remember exactly what I thought, but I do know that I learned a lot because I remember making not just mistakes, but, but seeing for myself that the things that I had assumptions about were totally wrong. You know, for example, I thought that there's some, there's such a thing as the perfect experience during a minion or the perfect davening that everybody would like. You know, there's a way to do it that everybody would like it. And I thought that if you do it the right way, everybody likes it. You do it the right way, you got them. Uh, I learned very quickly that people have very strong opinions about things and sometimes they're, they're contradictory. So you have one person that really wants this part of the service, another person that says, I really need that to be out. And another person says, it needs to be now, it needs to be later, it needs to be this time, it needs to be that time, it needs to be there, it needs to be here. So you start to realize that um, just like any community in this way, we're very similar to everywhere else. There are many opinions, but what I, what I what I found most was that you have to understand in a place where there are so many different backgrounds and so many different experiences that connect to their Judaism, you have to understand that people all are going to connect to their Judaism in different ways. And I, I, I turned my job from almost like a teacher to say, this is how we should do it and this is how it's going to be best because this is the way I liked it. I changed from that into someone that's trying to facilitate as many good experiences for as many people as possible. So this was the the mind shift that changed. You know, you come in, you're like, well, I know how I I know how I enjoy davening. I know how I enjoy it, and I know how everybody else that I talk to enjoys it this way. Or they say that it would be great if they did it this way. Let's do it that way. But I learned that there's no such thing really. It's very subjective. Um, when people grow up with Orthodox Judaism, a lot of times their their experiences kind of mold them in a similar way. But when people come to it on their own, or people don't come to it at all, they're just coming to see something that they, they find to be interesting and it's different than what they do, their experiences are always going to be very different and the things that they like and they enjoy are also going to be very different. So the, the, the example that always comes to mind when this, start, when this started for me was the, uh, the Mishabayach Pecholim. You know, Mishabayach Pecholim is a very controversial thing in many shuls. Right? Mishabayach Pecholim, let's say you have a shul of 100 people and each person, you know, they've got a few friends, a few people they know, relatives that are ill and they want to give their names in. You stand online sometimes in some shuls, it's like, you know, like a 20 minute recess. And other shuls, they say, well, you can't stand online. You have to give the names in advance. And other shuls say, you stand, in the, you stand up at your, at your place and you say the names on your own while the, while the gabbai reads the, reads the, the Mishaberach, but they don't read a whole list of names. In some shuls, the rabbi does it. In some shuls, the gabbai does it. 
And, you know, I always, like, didn't think about it. It was just like, whatever the shul does is fine. I don't have a strong opinion. I, I did kind of think that it was weird to have, like, a 20-minute break in the middle where everybody starts talking while you're doing this prayer for the sick people. It was always my personal feeling. Um, so you don't think about it in such, you know, strong terms. You think about it in very, very benign terms. But then you go become a rabbi of a shul where there are people that have opinions now. So the first year I was there, we had a regular system where, you know, people would give their names in on a, on a list. And if they didn't give their names in on a list, they would stand online. And then after a little while, somebody came over to me and said, you know, I really don't like the fact that it's such a long time. It's a break. You know, people get a little rowdy and I don't want them to, uh, I don't, I don't think it's, it's, it's proper quorum. When I say rowdy, I don't mean really rowdy. They're just schmoozing. It gets a little, it gets a little louder than usual. It's like a very quiet show usually. So the, the, the people that, that were bored, you know, they were talking and this guy was like, you know, we shouldn't do it this way. And I heard of a, of, of this thing where there were some shuls do it this way. And, and, and the rabbi or the gabbai reads the Mishaber for Cholim and each person says the names on their own. I'm like, well, brilliant. That's great. I mean, I love it. We would definitely waste less time, you know, have, avoid the rowdiness. So the next week I announced that there was a new system in place. The new system was that we will now read the Mishaber aloud at the Bima. Each person will say the names that they have on their own and that's it. Quick done, everybody's finished. We did it for like two weeks, and some guy comes over to me for two weeks, and he says, I'm very upset about the way that we do the Mishaber for Cholim now. I'm like, well, how can you be upset? Like, what's the big deal? You're just trying to pray for this person to get better, right? It doesn't matter, really. Just, we're trying to be efficient here. And a person, I didn't say that. I was just in my head, I thought that, and I said, well, what's what's bothering you? So he says, the highlight of the shul for me, the highlight of davening for me, is going to the Gavai and giving him the name. Hearing him say the name out loud, everybody hearing it, that's the highlight for me of davening. That's not why I come, but that's the best part of it for me. So I realized in that moment that the, the reason that I come to davening may be very different from another person. The reason that the person likes davening, the reason the person enjoys shul may be very different than the other person enjoys shul. And they're not going to always be consistent with each other. And that was a very, very profound lesson. I never had really thought about it that way. I never had really thought about how different it could be to have the things that you enjoy, the things that you love about davening in a different place. It was something that, as a rabbi, coming to the shul, was the first time I was rabbi of a shul, but that, I, I don't think most rabbis are as clueless as I was coming in, maybe, I don't know. But as a consumer, as a, as a shul goer, I had never thought about it in that way either. Like, I always thought, like, it's better this way, it's better a different way, and everybody will for sure agree. But when I heard this guy talking to me, and he was, like, really passionate about it, I realized that I have to find what the highlights are for people in davening. I have to find what parts they like. And I have to do as many of those as possible. And I can't eliminate them. Now, it's true that maybe the other guy will be upset. But when I told this person, the first guy, who wanted us to say it quietly because it's more efficient, when I told him that there is one person, and then actually, by the way, a few other people came over to me afterwards and said similar things in different ways. When that per- when I told that person that some people come to shul and the thing that they want the most, the, the favorite part of shul for them is this Misha Bear for Cholim, that they stand online and they give the name and they hear the name said by the Gabbai. That's what they want to hear. When he heard that, when he realized, of course, he's like, oh, wow, I didn't realize that people like that. I thought everybody thought it was a burden and a hindrance and annoying. And so sometimes when you hear what another person really enjoys, what another person's passionate about in terms of how they approach their service, how they approach their davening, you can start to realize empathetically that that thing that, they're, that they want to do is valuable and is different than what you might have thought. And that's something that I learned, not just with regards to Shemishaber, but once that happened, I started seeking these things out, finding out what's the thing that you enjoy about davening. And for everybody, it was different. Some people came for Kiddush. Some people came for the Drasha. Some people came for my little talk I did before leaning about something in the Parsha that was not like sermonish. Um, some people came because they wanted to daven for the Yomit. Some people came because they wanted to fall asleep in their seats. They just like being there. And some people came because they wanted to see other people. There's a million reasons why people came and that they loved the service. And we have to try sometimes to be aware of those because once you're aware of them, you at least have a shot at providing that for them. And you realize that you have to give everybody their fair shot. So that was really the biggest culture shock, the starting point for learning how to adapt. And I had not really had that before. I thought that there was a way to do it that everybody would like it. And I learned that there's not. But the way you can you can help people to see that is to explain to them individually how much other people like the thing that they maybe don't like so much. And if they don't hate it, if it doesn't hurt them, then we'll try to keep it in. People that are there are generally more open-minded because that's kind of like, if you're coming to this rule, that's where you're going to be. It's hard to get closed-minded or more closed-minded or more narrow-minded or more um, self-interested sometimes people to buy in. 
Luckily, we didn't have too many of those people because really, I mean, those are not the kinds of people that are going to end up in, in Venice Beach. So what do they do for Mishaberach and Yeshua? Um, the one I go to, they have uh, one person, uh, it actually depends on the Gabbai. Sometimes the Gabbai will say, do it in your seat, you know, and the other people, and then other ones will, will read it. I mean, I don't mind either way. One shul that I went to I thought was really nice is that when the Mishaberach comes, they give out a list of the names, and everybody reads it uh, together. So that way you don't have the thing of, you know, people talking. I don't know if everyone does it, but, you know, the, they give the opportunity for everyone to read uh, the names that are already on there. Then they give a pause for anyone to add their own names that they have, and then they, they finish it up. I thought that was really nice. I agree. Yeah. That is nice. The only thing is for us is that, you know, a lot of people wouldn't would have a trouble reading those names. Right. Even, even right. if they're written transliterated, it's just their foreign names. But also, you know, Misha Rafa Holm is another interesting thing about it is that, you know, in a, in a, in a shul that everybody's from, all the names are like the same, like, you know, Gedalia Moshe Ben Yisrael Yaakov, well, not Yisrael because it's, it's they do the mother's name, you know, Gedalia Moshe Ben uh, Saralea, you know, th- those are the names that you hear. But a lot of these names, the people that they were giving names for, they, they didn't know their Jewish names. Even if they, a lot of them weren't even Jewish. So a lot of Ben Avrahams, a lot of Ben Saras, a lot of just, um, a lot of just names, English names, Norman, you know? And, you know, you see, you, you know, as a yeshiva guy, you know, they come out of yeshiva like, eh, what are they doing? It's like, this is not what you're supposed to do. It's not a, not, you don't can't just use whatever name you want. But when you realize that even if the tefillah is meaningless, and I don't think it is, but even if it was, it's very meaningful for the people that are coming. It's very meaningful for the people that are there because those people are coming to bring that name and they want to have the feeling of participating in this. And it's meaningful to them. So why stand on ceremony and be like, you have to say it the right way? You could do that, but I think you lose a lot that way. And, and I think that that's something that is not necessarily uh, a common way of thinking in, 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 a, in a typical from shul. Right. Well, you know, you're brought up, not you, I don't know your specific situation, but people who are brought up in the yeshiva world and that, like myself and so on, you're, you know, given a certain thing, this is how it is done. And unless you're in a situation like you're in where where you have the opportunity of, or you're forced in a way to break out of that, that's just kind of the way you approach things. So, you know, luckily no, you're given this I opportunity. I don't blame anyone, right? I mean, it's not like, there's not a problem here. Um, so now when you're going to go, like, I think you posted that you're already, do you already have a place where you're moving on to or looking into, uh, moving on to? And if so, is it going to be like, if you're going to go to another shul situation where it may be a little bit more, uh, constricting or whatever, or the, just the vibe of it is not going to be as open. And how is that going to be now your, how's that going to affect you? How are you going to approach that kind of situation now that you've seen it be open like that? You know? Yeah, it's a great question. It's very fair. And I actually... Um, thought about this long and hard because the truth is that there was a there was a board meeting that I was at with my shul, you know, I guess it was probably four or five years ago already. And, you know, in the beginning, it's, it's a lot of tension. You know, you're adjusting, they're adjusting, everybody's got their own different thinking about what it should be and whether the rabbi's a good fit or whatever. But, you know, you persevere and you push through and you're there. And there are some people that say, you this rabbi's not going to last more than six weeks, six months max. And, you know, six and a half years later, I was still there. So I remember not knowing for certain what the shul board wanted. Like, do you want me to be here? Do you not want me to be here? Like, what's going on? Right? And um, one of the board members, a senior board member, said, we want you to be here forever. But, and then they had all these conditions, whatever, but the, the statement, like this vote of confidence, they wanted me to be there forever, um, put into my head, that maybe I will be here forever. And therefore, I never really thought about what it would be like not to be there. But, you know, life's circumstances obviously uh, change and you never know what's going to come um, you never know what's going to come. So th- the thinking about what it would be like to not be there was actually a very new thinking for me after um, we made this decision. And it seemed like the only thing that made sense at the time that we made the decision, just a few days ago, really, I mean, last week, really, um, is that we would have to kind of bring this, this thing that we had learned about, this thing that we had experienced, this thing that we had cultivated, we would have to bring this to more people. And that was really the, the, the inspiration to go and try and do this. So that's what the plan is. The plan is to bring the beach, this whole experience where there's diversity, where there's a conscious effort to try and make it as many people as possible have the best possible experience, where we are all in agreement about certain very, very basic things. But beyond that, we have many disagreements, but we come together because we think that the, the diversity enhances the experience. When, when we, 
take all the things from the shul that we had learned, which are not common in the Orthodox Jewish world. Now, it's true that there are places they do cure of, right? They're very open-minded. Um, or there are places that are not cure of places, but they are also open-minded. Um, it's true. I don't dispute that there are places like that, but the, the whole package, this whole thing, um, is, is something that I haven't seen or experienced anywhere else. So the, the, the plan right now, um, and you're putting me on the spot here, but the plan right now is to, um, well, thank you for putting me on the spot. I like talking about this. Um, the plan right now is to build something like the shul on the beach, uh, to build a community, to build a shul, to build a environment that is very similar, but can be accessed by more people. So people that are Orthodox from that liked what we did, were basically presented with one of two choices. Like either they can move <laughs> and pay more money for less space in a place where everything's further away, come to this shul, um, or they could just dream about coming to the shul and come once in a while. But now we're going to try and take that choice away. Pretty much um, the goal is that people that are living in the Orthodox Jewish community, the front community in Los Angeles, in, in, in Beverly, which is, the, which is the bigger community, will all have the choice. And the people who are not Orthodox that have been coming um, to the shul. So if they were going to the shul for the shul's sake, they'll still, can do, they'll still go to the shul for the shul's sake. If they were coming to the shul because they liked what we did, uh, they liked the experience, they liked the thing that we were able to provide that maybe is different, maybe it will change, who knows, um, then maybe they'll come to where we are now. So the goal is really to bring this to just more people. And what we've learned there is that there's a way to do this. And there's not a formula, but there is a philosophy. And the philosophy can be transplanted and obviously adapted. But that is the goal. And of course, we expect that there will be people who will be like, you can't do this, or this is too weird, or we're not going to like this. There'll be, a, there'll be people. But the beautiful thing about doing your own thing is that uh, you don't need them. They don't, they don't have to come, those people. So they have their own place. That's fine. There's plenty of shuls for the people that want to do that stuff. We're going to try and do something a little bit different. Um, and not just a shul, a community, but also not just a community, also a place where people can um, grow as people and as Jews. So if we can do that in that community, um, I think that we've basically become a satellite. We're not really leaving the shul on the beach, but we're bringing a lot of the lessons we learned to more people. And that, I think, is uh, a, a great way to, to expand the mission of what we did there, but also to, um, to, to grow that even further. So I appreciate that, Rami. Thanks for asking that. I wanted to get uh, I wanted to get that out there. You know, if you live in Los Angeles and you're listening, stay tuned. It'll be it'll be it'll be going on soon. So yeah, for me, I'm I'm going to actually be at a bar mitzvah in Israel next Shabbos. It's my last Shabbos in Venice. So next week I'll be at a bar mitzvah in in, in Israel. Um, and the week after that, it's Pesach. And I'm going to be in Tucson. If anybody's looking for a place for Pesach, they might have a couple rooms left. Dove Mountain, um, the Ritz Carlton Dove Mountain with uh, Mark David catering. So I'll be there for the next two Shabboses and then. After that, we'll see what happens. Like, I don't know where I, I don't know where I'm going to daven if I don't have a place yet for myself. Um, but it'll, it will only be temporary because we're, we're going to be doing this hopefully very, very soon. That's, that's, the, that's the hope. Um, you know, some things I won't be able to take with me, you know. The Jerusalem the biggest, stone? Say it again? The Jerusalem stone? <laughs> um, yeah, the Jerusalem stone. There's some shuls that have Jerusalem stone in LA. No, I know you wouldn't be able to take it from that shul because, uh... <laughs> Um, yeah, that is kind of, it's grouted in. It's quite, it's probably, probably pretty stuck. But we do, we, we can't take, um, the amount of homeless people on Venice Beach. And, you know, a lot of people look at that as a negative. It's, it's scary. It's weird. It's different. There's homeless people. And, uh, and I've learned a lot about homeless people from just interacting with a lot of them. Now, first of all, some of them are homeless by choice. I mean, kind of by choice. You know, some people might say they're all there by choice because if they take me other choices, they wouldn't be there. But no, no, some people like they live like the vagabond, very hippie, one with the world lifestyle and they like that. You know, they wouldn't function well in a, in a more rigid society. But the, the primary thing that I learned about homeless people is uh, mental health stuff. You know, like there's a lot of mental health issues out there and the worst sufferers inevitably that are not taken care of or well taken care of end up being um, living on the beach. And when they live on the beach, um, they, are now like part of a community there. It's, it's pretty cool, actually. Um, and there's a lot of fighting also, and there's a lot of violence sometimes. But by and large, they kind of get along. And when they get along, they have this community, and there are people that help them. And you can learn from them. You could talk to them. You could hear from them. And um, it's it's comforting to them sometimes to just hear a nice voice, say hello, say good morning. Um, I tried my best to be as kind as I could, unless they appeared to be under the influence of something that could make them violent or different or, you know, crazy and whatever. Um, but generally, 
they're very nice. You know, some of them are not, but some of them are very nice. And a lot of homeless people um, came to shul for Jews. You know, they came to shul. We didn't, you know, uh, clothe them and bathe them and feed them indefinitely, but they were shul. They come to Kiddush. Um, and we had leftovers sometimes and let people take stuff if they wanted. So it wasn't like homelessness was, you know, like the, the story of the shul on the beach, but it was actually part of the story. And, you know, Venice Beach is a place where you'll find a lot of homeless people. And when there are people in need, there's always opportunity to do things. And I learned a lot about it, though. That's the thing for me that's most important is that, you know, we grew up with assumptions. You know, <laughs> I think the most natural reaction for people when they see somebody homeless is not to think like, oh, Nebuch. It's like to feel like a loser. And I think that's that's a shame. I, I'm sure there are some losers out there. But a lot of them are just struggling with stuff that none of us would ever have to deal with. And some of them are down to the luck and they'll be back and non-homeless soon. You know, I, I was amazed. You know, I have two stories about people who are really, really homeless and one through our help and one just through our, our passive help got back on their feet and are completely functional in, in, in non-homeless society now. And the first guy uh, was just when I had started uh, blogging really at, uh, on Dove Bear's blog. So that's dovebear.blogspot.com who, by the way, helped me get my blog started really and was very beneficial and helpful in um, building what I've built um, on the internet. And I know, I don't know who he is personally, but I do have a lot of appreciation for what he did and how he helped me do that. So if you're listening out there, thank you, whoever you are. But um, yeah, so I wrote this, uh, this this little ethical question I had as a, you know, a new young rabbi in a because there was this homeless guy who was living in his car and he came to like tell me, you know, I didn't talk to you. He used to come to show a little bit. He was dressed, you know, wildly and I like shorts and which is not weird for Venice Beach, but like certain kinds of shorts are more <laughs> appropriate than others. I don't know. He just felt like he was very, he was like a mess a little bit, you know, and he was taking showers at the JCC. Uh, he was, uh, you know, oh, oh, he was, you know, he was, he was dirty and he was not, obviously not uh, in good shape. And he tells me like, Rabbi, all I can eat is bread and milk. I can't afford anything else. That's what they give out. I mean, it was really, really sad. He's like, I down to my last dollar. I have nothing. He had some assets. He had stuff that he could sell. He had a car. But he had no plan because he was here, I guess, on a temporary visa from a different country, which was accessible. But he couldn't afford to get back. And so he was stuck here and he couldn't work for even McDonald's. Like He's like, I'll work at McDonald's, but they won't hire me because I don't have a green card. So he, I said, how much money do you need to get home? Right? You need to get home. How much money do you need to get home? He said, a certain amount of money. It was not a lot. It was like a thousand bucks, let's say. So I'm like, okay, let's see if I can figure this out. So I said to him, you need, you need this money? You need a thousand bucks? Let me see what I can do. So I, I asked around. I was seeing if I can get a thousand bucks and I wasn't sure if I'd be able to, but I was going to at least try. So then in the cost, in the, in the course of the discussion, I realized to myself, you know what? Hang on. I'm going to take a thousand dollars of charity money and give it to this guy. He's homeless. Like, I don't know. I don't trust him. I mean, maybe he'll use it for the right purposes. Maybe he'll be like, you know what? If I had a thousand bucks, I can invest in something and I'm going to get everything I need to do, get back on my feet and everything's going to be perfect. But I wasn't able to guarantee that. So I didn't know, either, I didn't know either way. So I was like, what, what is my role here? Can I use communal funds? Is there an ethical question here? Can you use communal funds to give it to this guy if I don't know what he's going to do with the money? Which is a great question. So I put this question up on Dove Bear's blog. You could search for it. It's there. You can find it. And I think it's called the ethical question charity. Just search that way. And you think so. A lot of great questions. You know, in those days, uh, the blogs were what Facebook is today is like, you know, questions and there was, comments. It was like 400 comments on this post. It was like a really, really interesting discussion. But the craziest part about it was somebody anonymously emails me and says, I'll give the money. Don't worry about it. I don't care what he does with it. I'm giving the money. And he sends me this PayPal link for the money. I did not ask anybody. It was not about raising money. It was just about asking this question. I thought I was going to be able to get the money anyway. And he sends his money. He says, I don't care what he does with the money. I'm giving it to you. So I didn't want to tell this guy that the money was no strings attached, but for me, the money was no strings attached. So I told this guy to pay the money, but we need to make sure that you do this. We helped him get there. And, you know, I, I sent him on his way. It was not easy. You know, for a week, he was hemming and hawing, and I didn't give him the cash. Finally, he's like, okay, I'll go. I gave him the money. He went. I got a call from him two weeks later. He's like, I'm, I'm, I'm across the border. I'm here. And thank you very much. I'm checking into this program and social programs here, and I have citizenship, so I got a much better chance. And uh, I hear from him every once in a while. This is about six years ago this happened. I've heard from him probably five times since then. And each time he updates me on how he's doing, he's got a job, he's got a life, he's got a home, he's got a, he's back in, he's back in regular functional society only because 
of what some anonymous internet person did for him, but really because we took the time to talk to him. Like a lot of people would say, no, you shouldn't talk to him. You shouldn't be friendly to him because who knows what kind of, you know, bad influences and elements could come in here. And I actually got some flack for it. The show. There's one guy who, who, you know, this guy came to Shal Shittis once. So this guy dressed for Shal Shittis like, you know, a homeless person. He had long shorts. He had sandals and he had a tie-dye t-shirt that looked like it was from the actual origination of tie-dye t-shirts when they were invented. Um, and you know, he didn't, he, he didn't smell very good. It was, it was, it was uncomfortable for a lot of people. And one guy was like, Rabbi, I have a question for you. Is there anything that the Jewish law says about how one should come dressed to come to shul? Is there anything that's inappropriate to wear to shul? Like it's very passive aggressive question about whether this guy was dressed inappropriately. And if he wasn't dressed appropriately, maybe he shouldn't come. And it was very difficult, but I tried to handle it well. And I, you know, didn't want this guy to feel like unwelcome. But I also didn't want the person to ask the question to, you know, I didn't want to really, really upset him that, with, 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 with some very uh, obnoxious retort. So I tried to handle it well, and I think I did an okay job. But the point is that it was not easy to, to give this guy a friendship. Uh, it was, there was some re- resistance to it. So by, by the fact that I was able to kind of keep him in the fold long enough to, to get to know him, to find out a situation for him, to confide in me, to get the money, to get him out, that he was very appreciative for. Another woman, this is much more recently, this is last year, she, you know, sometimes people come in and tell us a story and you're like, you know they're lying. It's like, there's no way this is your real story. She came in and she, this is one of these people, like, you know she's lying, right? She's like, I'm, I'm fine, I have a family, but my husband just left me and now I have no money and I need a place to stay, I need a place to eat, I need a place to daven, I'm from, I'm orthodox. And we're like, you're, you're not, you look homeless, it's obvious. And she looked like a mess and she had some, like, it seemed like she had some mental health issues. It did not seem like she was okay. But, you know, as long as she's not dangerous, as long as she's kind, as long as she's not making people feel very uncomfortable, we let her come and she came to Minions and she, she came to community meals and she came to the Kiddishes and she came to Shalashidas. Like she was a very positive contribution to the, to, to the environment. Um, and people were, you know, always a little bit, you know, skittish, but in the end she was totally fine. But then crazy thing is she actually came up with a couple of people at Shul and she never came back one time. We like, she's gone. We never knew who she was. And then one of our Shul members was in Israel. And while in Israel for one of his family, similar family Simchas or something, the, that family, they had kept up with her a little bit. And she actually came to the Simcha. She was living in Israel. And she was like totally fine. Not just totally fine. She was like thriving. She had a family. She had her money. She had her life. She didn't seem to have any mental health issues. It was like a different person. But all, she really only needed that. Like, yeah, I tear up thinking about this. I only really thought like we were doing this person a favor and maybe she'll, you know, survive a few more extra days or months or whatever. But like the fact that we were there for her for a little while gave her the chance to turn her life around. And she really, really did. Like she's a totally functional person right now in society. No one would have ever guessed that she was in this situation a few months ago. I know. The people in our shul might know. They may not even know that she's doing okay now. But to hear this report back from this person from the shul that was in Israel, I was I was like moved to tears. It was so powerful to me that this happened. And of course, these are the two like biggest examples. Many others have been helped, but many others have not. And so the homelessness is something that um, really is a very different thing. I don't think I'm going to be able to bring that from the beach. But that is something that um, I, definitely has life lessons that I've learned. Speaking of homelessness, just kidding. We are in the middle of a marathon here at the Nachum Siegel Network. And uh, the marathon is not a running marathon. It is a fundraising marathon. So it's your chance to really help out. If you enjoy the shows, if you enjoy the, uh, the, the, the entire experience, the entire Nachum Siegel experience, and you want more of it, this is your chance to help out. Um, it's easy to help. You can go to the Nachum Siegel webpage, um, and you can find all the information and the links you need there. We appreciate your support very much, and we appreciate your support when you listen. We also want you to keep on listening. We also want you to keep on having the opportunity to listen. So um, the marathon is our, our big fundraiser. It's been going on for quite some time now. We're getting near the end. So if you haven't been beaten down yet enough to, uh, to, 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 to convince you that it's important, let this be the rabbi giving you a stern warning. You must help us, please. Thank you. Um, and if you do... But then I'm sure that the Nachum Siegel Network will be able to provide the kind of programming that you come to expect and continue to expect for many years to come. I did get some questions about what it's like to be a rabbi on the beach from uh, some of the some of the listeners out there, so I wanted to share some of the some of the some of these questions are like the questions that everybody asks, and so I, of course I've been asked these questions before, um, so I'm I'm prepared easily. So one 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 question, uh, this comes courtesy of a friend of mine, Rabbi. Uh, Israel Tzvi from Lakewood. And you know, he does a lot of outreach also. So it's a different kind of 
outreach. You know, he's more interested in um, connecting people from the non-Orthodox community into the from community almost directly. And our shul was much more experiential, just come here and experience this. But I, we've always been uh, soulmates and, and soul brothers in many ways. We've talked a lot over, long, over the internet, met in person a couple of times. And he asked me, what was the wildest thing that ever happened during a sermon? And <laughs> believe me, there have been quite a few. Um, so the truth is, during these Shabbos morning sermon, like the real sermon, the 11.30 before Kiddush sermon, um, the doors are closed and very little happens that is of any interest. The most interesting thing that happened then was that it was after a very big rainstorm and there was a lot of wind and the way our building is built, it's very old. The wind actually like, you know, it, it penetrates the walls. It goes through the drop ceiling and the panels, the drop ceiling, the, the they shake a little bit when it's windy. So I was like talking about um, the 10 Makos and I was saying like, you need to learn the lessons from the things that happen around you. <laughs> and then like at that moment, one of the ceiling tiles, these big drop ceiling, ceiling tiles, these rectangles, it falls down right next to somebody who was sitting there, this woman that was sitting there you know, very intently listening to the sermon, and it fell down like a foot away from her, and it didn't hit her, thank God. But it was it was just a very, very funny, non-very Venice, but just funny experience. So that was like the most interesting thing that happened in the actual sermon. But as far as like Venice Beach goes, it was a Friday night when there's very few people there generally, and Friday night there's more wildness on the boardwalk because it's evening. And this crazy person, woman, crazy person, it wasn't like mumbling, and you know when people are like mumbling to themselves and like muttering and like they have the glassy look, you know, there's not, it's not okay. You need, you need to like keep them away. So she tries to come in and everyone's like, no, no, you can't come in. Like this is, this is a private event. So we, we wanted to keep her out. So she went out and then she like returns later and she's like growling with this like really loud voice. And before she'd been like this really sweet, meek person, like mumbling, like <laughs> that's how she was talking. And then she comes back and she's like, <laughs> it was the same person, but like nobody thought it was the same person. And then we like got her away again. And then she comes back. And nobody's outside anymore. Like it was much later, like probably 10, 15 minutes later. She comes back and I'm in the middle of giving my Friday night of our Torah. And we hear from outside, Allahu Akbar. And everybody like ducks down. We're all freaking out. So it was, we looked out, but it was like the same crazy old woman. And it was not serious. She wasn't actually a terrorist or even somebody who was trying to be a terrorist. She was just saying crazy things. Um, so that was probably the, the freakiest thing that happened during an actual sermon. And there were many other sermons where you could hear people from outside saying or doing crazy things. Sometimes people would be right outside having a very loud conversation about something very important and the sound traveled right in. I'm like, I'm competing with this conversation about like drug deals or like getting arrested or something that is obviously not appropriate for the uh, sermon. And like you can hear them at least as loud as you can hear me. Um, so those types of things happen often. And they're also the, the, the uh, random person. You know, there was a guy in the show once and he was in the show. And he was not mentally well. He had issues, but we're fine with him. And at one point during the sermon, I think somebody came and sat next to him who he didn't like. And there was something going on. He like stands up in the middle of the sermon. He's like, I'm leaving. I don't like it here. Why is this happening to me? And just like walks out. So we've had things like that happen. Um, but generally, people are very well behaved in the sermon. The best thing that ever happened to me during a sermon, though, happened last week. Shabbat Across America, a lot of people celebrate that and mark that event. So Shabbat Across America, we had in Venice, we had a huge crowd, 80, 90 people, and there's also people that are on the boardwalk. They're Jews, they're Israelis, they're coming, they see, they come in. And a lot of times we just like invite them in and they hang out for a bit. So these three Israelis are there, they're sitting with these people. They had never met them before. It was fun, it was cool. And then it's my turn to speak. So I get up, I'm about to start speaking. It's like 20 minutes of a speech, probably around, maybe 30 minutes. It's like a lecture, planned lecture, not a sermon. And I go up there and they're like already standing up, like about to walk out. And it's fine. Every time I get up to speak, there's always people who walk out. So as they're about to walk out, one of the people that's next to them says, the rabbi's about to speak. And they sit back down. I was like, what? People don't sit back down when the rabbi's about to speak, especially strangers. Like if you feel guilty, it's one thing. These guys don't even know me. So I was like, that's the first time that's ever happened to me. So they sat back down. Maybe that's the wildest thing that ever happened during a sermon. Somebody sat back down instead of going out. So yeah, that's the answer to your question, Rabbi. So um, a lot of different interesting things happened in the sermons. Um, but again, it's not just during a sermon. I've had crazy things happen not during sermons. You know, there was a woman that once came in and she's like talking nicely, whatever. And all of a sudden she like breaks into like evangelical speech. Like she starts talking about, you know, the son of God and the Jews and all this. And it's like a very scary moment for a second. And then she like goes down to the floor, bows down prostrates herself she lies on the floor with her hands and feet stretched like lying on the floor totally prone as stretched out as possible praying 
And she's like that for like, you know, 10 minutes, just lying there, praying. And minus she leaves. And she comes back the next week. She wants to do it again. She's like, that was the most special experience. Can I do it again? So we let her do it for a couple of weeks. And then we're like, you know what? Stop coming around. But this is the kind of thing that happens only in Venice Beach. And we try to be fun. Fun. We try to be nice. We try to be kind. We try to be friendly. Um, those are the types of things I don't anticipate we'll be taking with us to the next place. Uh, probably my favorite story, though, of like the interesting person that comes. You know, first of all, you get interesting celebrities sometimes. You know, Theodore Raquel, who I had never heard of, but now I know who he is. He's the original uh, Tevye Fiddler on the Roof, and he played on uh, The Sound of Music. He's like this very, very, very famous Jewish stage star. He's they going for a walk on Venice Beach with his wife in his wheelchair. And my son is standing outside and they look for the show for a second. And he's like, he like waves them. Come on in. My son's like 11 years old. And he's like, well, come on in. It's all shit. He comes, it was men actually comes in and somebody goes over and is like, welcome. Everybody get what gets welcomed when they come to the shul. And they're like, welcome, welcome. And he's, um, he's like, no, nah, hey. he's like talking to them. And then somebody says, what's your name? He's like, theater of Kel. So the guy's like taking it back. He's like, the, the theater of Kel. He's like, yeah. So he's like, wow. So he stays for Mincha, comes to Shalashidis. He's not firm or anything, but he comes for Shalashidis and he's schmoozing. He's telling us these awesome stories and these funny jokes. He's being like his own self. Like you look him up online. He's like very dynamic personality, very interesting guy. And you get Theodore Bikel and the next week we have to be all ready. So like, you know, we get a little bit of everything. And the guests were always a very interesting part of the show. A lot of people that I met and became very close to and friends with were just guests of the show, even for a week or for a month or for three months or for a year. But I met a lot of people and had a lot of relationships with people that had just come as guests were, it was very special because they had not planned on having this great experience. They just found out there's a shul or they even walked by and there's a shul. And now uh, we've been, we've become very close. My favorite, favorite encounter on the boardwalk still is this guy that I met twice. And I never thought I would see him again after the first time. He's like this. I think he was from Iran, maybe Iraq, but I think he was Iranian, not Jewish, used to be Muslim. And now he says he's just spiritual. And the first time I had met him, um, he told me the entire story of Muhammad from his own perspective. Like he had like this whole modern spiritual twist on it. It was not the actual story, but it was like his new prophecy or I don't know. And I, he's a little nuts, but I'm like, it's cool. And then one Shabbos, he stops by and he starts teaching me uh, some of the great poetry from Rumi. And he's talking about the poem about, you know, the Pharaoh and Moses and compliments to the Jewish people and all these nice ideas that he had um, about Jews based upon this, this poem. And then he tells me a beautiful poem by Gibran, the famous Muslim poet that children do not truly belong to the parents, but they're a vessel through which, um, parents are the vessel through which children flow to the world, and therefore the parents may not harm them or impede them, they only can help them. And he then tells me the story about how he was driving his cab and this couple was fighting bitterly about their children. It was a very wealthy couple, like going from one really fancy spot in Bel Air to another fancy spot in Beverly Hills, and they're arguing about their kids. And they're and he's like, what's 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 the, what's the, what's the machlekes here? Why are you guys arguing? And you know, one's like, she's too harsh, and she's like, he's too soft, and he's listening to the whole thing. And they finally say to him, what do you think? He's like a little taken aback. Uh, like, you really want my opinion? So he's like, yeah. The guy says, yeah. So he starts to give him the whole philosophical thing about Gibran and children, and she starts crying, and he says, I said something to upset you. She's like. Shakes her head, she like starts smiling. She asks if she can, if he can pull over. So he pulls over for a second. She gets out of the car, says, please step out of the car. She steps out of the car and they like give each other this big hug. This woman from Bel Air, this like immigrant, very shabby looking cab driver. He drops him off for the restaurant for dinner and then he says, should I pick you up in a couple hours? Like that's the move that they do in here. Like in New York, they don't ever do that. They're just like, cab is, you're out of the cab. You'll never see them again. But in LA, they're always like, I'll pick you up later. Just tell me what time you want me to come get you. So, they left the cab full of anger and they were like very harsh towards each other. And they got back when he picked them up, they were like smiles, united, connected. And that cab driver, this guy became like their private driver for like the next 10 years. So these are the kinds of people that you can meet on Venice Beach. You can learn a lot from these people. So they don't never know that when you see them. Like the first time I talked to him, I was like, you know, maybe I shouldn't be talking to this guy. Um, but it was the kind of thing where like, this will stick with me forever. Um, so I was appreciative for him for that. Now I'll just get to the last couple of questions. They're easy ones before uh, we end for the day. Um, so one of them is, you know, did you ever perform a service on the boardwalk? You know, so the boardwalk is a little nuts. So the answer is, of course, we do the Simcha uh, Torah thing. We think Sefer Torah, we dance on the boardwalk. But we've done it on the beach very often. Not very often, but often enough. So Friday night sometimes when, Shul, when Shabbos starts late and we make early Shabbos, you can go to the beach, you can sing the, all the Kabbalah, song, Kabbalah Shabbos songs, and you can be Kabbalah Shabbos inside after you're done. Um, so we did that a lot of times. We have no Arab, so we couldn't bring a Sidurim outside. So without 
the era of you have to do it only in the summer when you make sure early Shabbos, but we do all of Kabbalah Shabbos until the parts where you're in Kabbalah Shabbos. Then we go inside, and um, for many people, that was a very beautiful way to bring in the Shabbos. You can imagine the sun is actually setting behind you, or it's about to set, and it's like a very powerful experience. Um, you know, sunsets there, spectacular. Uh, not every day, but many days. So, seeing that on Friday night is actually beautiful. And, you know, and the other questions that some of the questions people want to know is like, how do you deal with people that are different from different opinions of you? And, and I think I addressed a little bit about before. It's all about trying to understand people from their possess, from their perspective and their position. And if you can do that, um, I think any rabbi, really any person will find that that is the most useful tool to being successful and being happy and being able to connect with people um, in a shul and really anywhere. So we end now. Uh, we end the show for now, but not only do we end the show, uh, we end the run. It's been two, six and a half years. I look forward to the next thing. Everybody's invited, of course, to uh, continue with our relationships online. Shul on the internet continues. Shul on the beach continues, but not with me. And the shul on the next thing will be hopefully starting soon. Uh, you can always reach me at Rabbi Think at Gmail, Facebook, anywhere online. So the last, um, the last message really of, of what I've learned from there is really the message of, of the song that we end the show with every week. Um, my favorite song from Ellie Schwabel's album, Don't Stop Giving Love, because for me that's what it's all been about. It's what it always will be about. And something that I maybe had internalized more. I knew you didn't have it completely beforehand, but now it's become really the thing that I do become my life because of what I've learned from my experience at the show on the beach. So we see, uh, have, a, have a great day, everyone. Have a great week. Uh, have a good Chodesh. And uh, we'll see you next time. Kept you inside all alone.